Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, South Africa's diplomacy in Zimbabwe is falling short. What should Pretoria do differently? And African-based think tanks are sprouting up everywhere. What challenges do they face to thrive? Plus, we discuss the continent's power sector and how to supercharge its post-COVID-19 recovery. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. South Africa has twice deployed envoys to deal with the crisis in Zimbabwe. Why are these efforts failing to make a difference? Joining me to discuss Zimbabwe and other topics are Todd Moss, founder and executive director of the Energy for Growth Hub, Rose Matiso, research director for the Energy for Growth Hub and co-founder and CEO of the Mawazo Institute, and Kate Steele, co-founder and COO of Nithio and an advisor to the Energy Growth Hub. Okay, in August, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa appointed former parliamentary speaker and a former minister of safety and security as special envoys to Zimbabwe. With almost nothing to show for their efforts, he sends a second delegation, this time from the ruling ANC, to give it a try. The African National Congress has met with Zimbabwe's governing ZANU-PF to discuss the political and economic crisis in that country, but the delegation did not meet with any of the opposition or other stakeholders. So, Todd, before we dive into why there's been so little progress with the South African effort, can you just update our audience on what is the current political and economic crisis in Zimbabwe? Yeah, the, the big picture in Zimbabwe is that there was a lot of, you know, big hope that the country would finally turn around after the coup in November 2017 and the disputed election in 2018. There was a lot of expectations that the economy would get better and that political space would open up. But unfortunately, the exact opposite has happened. Political repression has gotten worse. The space for free speech has closed. And we've seen just a really horrific wave of abductions and disappearances, likely by the security forces and a wave of arrests of journalists. And, you know, the economic decline was bad before COVID and now it's catastrophic. So we're even hearing people say that, well, as bad as things were under Robert Mugabe, it's actually gotten far worse under Manangagwa. I mean, that's just a shocking, shocking statement, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a question as to where is the bottom in Zimbabwe? How much pain and suffering can the Zimbabwean people take? Um, there seems to be no bottom, but right now it does not look like there's going to be an easy path out of the hole that they've dug for themselves. And I guess maybe because the crisis is getting so bad or because South African President Cyril Ramaphosa wants to distinguish himself from his predecessors, we do have to give credit where credit's due. And his government has been much more outspoken uh, about the problems in Zimbabwe. A number of observers have noted that Durko, which is their foreign ministry, has even put out some tweets around the human rights abuses, which is really the first time the South African Communist Party, which is part of the ANC, the ruling party coalition, has been more direct, uh, calling out ZANU, the ruling, the Zimbabwe ruling party for failing its mandate. And that this, these, uh, the idea that there's no crisis, uh, the quote was a denial of the self-evident truth. So I do want to give them credit for that. But let's be clear, the South African envoys didn't or maybe couldn't meet with the main opposition. 
South Africa hasn't joined with the other diplomatic missions that have issued statements of concern about Zimbabwe's trajectory. And so I guess, Todd, if what South Africa has been doing so far is insufficient, what should they do? I mean, what what is the way to move forward? We've been doing this and talking about the crisis in Zimbabwe for a very long time, but is there a chance for real and substantive engagement here? Well, I'm I'm not very impressed with the effort so far from South Africa. A couple of tweets is not muscular diplomacy. And really, if South Africa wants to pressure its northern neighbor to change, it's going to have to do a lot of things differently. And I just haven't seen any signs that they're serious about about wanting to make that happen. Um, so I don't put a lot of hope in South Africa suddenly having an epiphany and squeezing the regime in Harare to behave. I think the important steps that we have to see from the international community is not to whitewash the human rights abuses that we're seeing and not to bail out a government that has shown it has no intention whatsoever of really being open for business or for reforming its economy. It's really a small cabal of very wealthy people connected to the military who are stealing everything they can before it all falls apart. It's really rats on a sinking ship. And so I do think that the U.S., and our other allies need to keep holding the line on this uh, until we see a true opening to deal with the opposition. And I should say, not the fake opposition that's being touted around Washington, D.C. sometimes, but the real opposition, the MDC alliance that likely won the 2018 election. No, I completely agree, Todd. There's much more pressure that we need to put uh, as an international community on Zimbabwe. And I guess on South Africa, I'm modest, right, about what they're doing. But as much as we can reinforce it and encourage them to do more, I think that that's a hill we should always die on and keep encouraging South Africa to put more pressure. So let's switch to the second topic today, which is really exciting. We're going to talk about African think tanks. There are about 8,100 think tanks globally. 25% of these are in North America, 26% of these are in Europe. Africa has only 7.5%. So clearly, there is a correlation between development and research. At CSIS, we've partnered with African think tanks such as the Institute for Security Studies, ISS in South Africa, the Center for Democracy and Development, CDD, in Nigeria. We're hoping to do more of this in the future, but we have Rose here, and I thought this is a great opportunity to get a ground-level view on what the think tank space on the continent really looks like. Rose, you're the co-founder and CEO of the Mwazo Institute. It's based in Nairobi. Can you talk a little bit about the institution, its mission, and some of the challenges that either you specifically face or, in general, what are the obstacles, opportunities that think tanks on the continent face. Thanks, Chad. So yeah, the Mawazo Institute, um, based in Nairobi, our mission is to develop the next generation of female scholars and thought leaders who we hope will go on to help revive our very ailing knowledge ecosystem. You know, this is, you know, from our universities, our research institutes, our think tanks, and more generally, just promote a culture of public intellectuals who are weighing in thoughtfully on issues of the day. In terms of, you know, the challenges in our research ecosystem, and which includes think tanks, there are so many problems. Sometimes I struggle to list them. But, you know, I would say three three things that really jump. 
One is funding. So, you know, our research ecosystem is chronically underfunded. We have very low government spending um, on research in most African countries. I think the average is like less than a half of a percent compared to over 2% in rich countries of government spending on research. And then we also have huge dependence on foreign funding. So a lot of our research is actually funded by donors and, and the like. A second issue is independence. So, you know, we have a lot of interfer interference from government, from African governments themselves. Plus, we have oversized influence of donors and foreign researchers, which, again, is tied to this funding issue. I think lastly, one I, you know, I'd like to point out that is obviously close to my heart and related to the work of Mawazo is, is this issue of human capacity. So we're struggling to develop local talent. And this is across the entire educational pipeline. And we are also impacted by, you know, forces such as brain drain, where a lot of like the great minds are pulled pulled to into greener pastures. So, and, and on top of this, the old guard of the post-independence intellectuals that we had back in the 60s is almost fully depleted. So, you know, all of these factors together mean that our research institutions and our think tanks are, you know, basically glorified consultancy farms that are chasing RFPs from government and donors and, and have no focused or independent agenda. That may be even more of a hard-hitting critique than what the Brookings Institute came out with in 2017, where they talked about that many credible think tanks have disappeared and the survival of the remaining ones is at stake. As you noted, they talked about funding and the lack of independence. We have to address some of these systemic challenges if we want to see them succeed. And so I thought maybe Kate and Todd, who have interacted with African think tanks, can share their impressions. Kate, throughout your time in government and private sector, I'm sure you've engaged a lot with the continent's best and brightest. What do you, you know, what's your experience been like? Sure. And I have to say, when I was in government, we actually engaged a lot more with U.S. think tanks, which is probably exactly what should not have happened. And I, I think it's really important to listen to the voices on the ground like Rose, that my experience has been that think tanks are really an essential part of policy debate and, and creation, and definitely saw that during my time at Power Africa, where CGD and CSAS were really instrumental in making sure the program got off the ground, making sure it continued, and really providing a forum for discussion of some of the tougher policy points. And I think African think tanks have a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses as US ones. They're just almost the stakes are higher, more things are more amplified, that the strength is really in the proximity to problems and decision makers. And I think that's where, you know, Rose is really in the thick of it on the ground. And they're seeing firsthand what's needed and can be a really influential voice in guiding policy decisions. You know, think tanks need to produce high quality work that's independent. And to stay in business doing that, they need long term funding that's not linked to any bias or specific positions. And and, you know, on one hand, you have a challenge of in most African countries, there is there's a smaller pool of academics and practitioners to draw from because many have left the continent. And then independence is a lot tougher to come by since the fundraising environment is is so much more limited. It's it's really hard to rule out sources of funding. African think tanks are absolutely critical. And, and I think as much as there can be greater partnerships with ones internationally and ways to build up those independent funding sources, it will really be to the benefit of both the think tanks, but also to the policymakers. I have to say, when I was listening to Rose's critique or noting some of the challenges, some of them seem to me just true or truisms about the think tank world and research world. And some of them seem like they were, you know, Africa is an extreme example of these challenges. And then there are some unique ones as well. Todd, right, you run the Energy Growth Hub. You were also the COO of the Center for Global Development. You know, how does Kate and Rose's assessments match with your own? 
Yeah, look, I think all think tanks struggle to bridge academic research with policy influence. And some African think tanks have had an especially hard time translating the language and work of academia into something useful for policymakers, in part because in Africa, it's not as common to have the back and forth between working in a think tank and working in, in government that we have in the U.S., I know personally, I've learned a ton about how government works from my time in the State Department. Rose worked in the Department of Energy and on Capitol Hill and in academia, you know, and really very few African think tankers have that opportunity to work in government and learn how it's done so that they know how to influence it. I would say, however, Ghana is somewhat of an exception. It's got a really dynamic think tank environment, and several current senior officials in the government came from the think tank world, including the, the current deputy energy minister, Dr. Adam. And when an African think tank works well, it's really wonderful to watch. I'm very proud to be on the board of the Institute of Economic Affairs in Accra. It's Ghana's first think tank, and they've had some really huge wins promoting transparency and good governance in Ghana including key roles in the passage of laws covering whistleblower protection, oil management, fiscal responsibility, and other areas where they've just had a, a huge impact. And I'd note also that the IEA's former executive director, Gene Mensa, who I, I know you know, Judd, is now the chair of Ghana's electoral commission, which is managing the election coming up this December. So that's real think tank impact right there. That's really good to hear. And Rose, I'm going to ask you a really selfish question. Well, it's a general question that's important and then a selfish question. One is, you know, what are some of the recommendations you would have in terms of strengthening African think tanks? And then selfishly, you know, we want to do more at CSIS with African think tanks. So, you know, what kind of partnerships make sense and what kind of partnerships may not be as enabling or elevating as maybe one might think on first glance? I recognize now that I came out swinging at the top. So now I'll try and just, you know, soften my stance. Um Thanks to Kate and Todd for pointing out this really important important thing that, you know, these are challenges that are common to think tanks everywhere. And so it's not just like, obviously, Africa is not this black hole of everything that think tanks are struggling. And you're right that we need to work together. You know, a few things I think that can be helpful is, you know, partnership and collaboration with U.S. think tanks are really important. But what's important is that these partnerships need to be peer to peer, you know, basically equal partnerships. And because what we often see is kind of parachute research where you need like a local partner and, you know, a lot of the agenda setting is done, you know, in DC or wherever else uh, the the foreign think tank is based, uh, or we have this kind of tokenism where you drag African people out to your events to speak and give the African perspective and that kind of thing. And so I know thinking through how can we thoughtfully build equal partnerships where we're, you know, from conceptualization of ideas and that kind of thing. And, and you know, I think that's something that I see Todd uh, and the entire team at Energy for Growth Hub does a really great job of is really working with local think tanks in a way where it's, it's kind of a, a real peer-to-peer -peer relationship. And I would like to see more of that. I think related to this point of partnership, we also need a lot of intra-African kind of partnerships and coordination. And I think this is one thing that U.S. think tanks and others can help facilitate because, you know, many African think tanks are really bandwidth strapped. They're embattled. They're forced into an inward posture. And so kind of spending some time to help facilitate the connections and to kind of build up this space with, you know, your kind of financial resources or human resources. Another really crucial thing is we just need core and flexible funding for African think tanks versus what we see, which is this consultancy type project funding that, that dominates. I think we really need to see a strong desire by funders, whether it's in the government or in the foundation space or wherever, to invest in the institutions holistically. We need to reach deep into the pipeline to make sure that we're developing local 
local talent. And so supporting African universities is a good place to start. I think scholarships, fellowships, things that help African thinkers, scholars, students to gain experiences abroad, to gain experiences in government, to gain experiences in different sectors, to work in partnerships in different configurations, like all of that is all part of the kinds of investments that help nurture the talent that's already there on the ground. I think those are great recommendations. So we're going to make sure that we have a link to the Mwazo Institute on the show notes. And then Rose, I'm going to ask you at some point to come back and give me a scorecard or report card on how we're doing, because, you know, I take, you know, your recommendations really seriously. And I think we're striving to do it, but we're probably also guilty of some of the problems, too. So something that we'll keep working on as well. All right, let's move to the final topic for today, which is about Africa's energy sector. And I'm going to make a straight up confession here. If you ever hear me say anything insightful about Africa's power sector, it is because I am just parroting what Rose or Kate or Todd says. I am just a medium almost for their insights. So I'm just going to get out of the way and let them share their insights and walk us through the challenges in the power sector and what we need to do to promote a smart recovery. And Todd and Rose have this piece, which I love, um, mainly just for the title, but also the insights, I guess, which is a post-COVID agenda for a zombie-free recovery of Africa's power sector. So I don't know who wants to take this first, but what does a zombie-free recovery mean? I can go first and then hand over to Todd. So yeah, you know, basically nearly all African power utilities are, are zombies. You know, they're operating at a loss, but we can't kill them. We need them. We can't have a functional power sector without our utilities, you know, playing the role that they need to play. And something that's interesting is there's this term utility death spiral that has been circulating in the US for years. So, you know, everyone has been freaking out for a very long time about the impact of DRE, like distributed renewable energy and energy efficiency on utility business models. And, you know, I, I, I find that kind of really interesting because when I think of Africa, you know, it's the death spiral is literal. It's 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 a literal death spiral that we're looking at, not just a, a meme or kind of a, an idea that's circulating. So, you know, first, you know, we take ailing utilities that are operating at a, a near bank, bankruptcy. You add a massive government push for rural electrification, which means that these utilities, these bankrupt utilities have to connect millions of low consumption and loss making customers. Meanwhile, the large power customers in industrial and commercial sectors who form the bulk of utility revenue Venues are defecting from the grid because the quality is terrible, prices are high, and they're tired of cross-subsidizing the masses. On top of this, the grid infrastructure is crumbling and the entire system is woefully inefficient. And, and then now, these same utilities are having to absorb increasing shares of variable renewables that are destabilizing these fragile grids and driving up costs. Plus, the government continues to meddle in prices, in governments. The government is forcing utilities to sign contracts for new generation projects that they can't absorb, not to mention the intractable corruption. And, oh, now we have COVID. So, you know, as you can see, African utilities are under incredible amount of pressure. But, you know, we need them. And so this is this is this is the zombie scenario we're describing that we need to tackle. So Rose has painted a pretty dire picture of what's happening. I, I think what we try to articulate in our piece is that if we just revert to that old status quo in the recovery, that's going to be just a huge missed opportunity. Um, and it's actually going to worsen the gaps that we're seeing between Africa and the rest of the world when it comes to energy provision. One thing I think just to start is that COVID has really exposed just the vast chasm of energy inequality 
And we just cannot have a world where the, where people living in rich countries have stable, cheap power so they can telework, they have air conditioning, and they're streaming Netflix. Well, we're just going to let Africans have a couple of light bulbs and a phone charger. That's not climate justice. That's not energy justice. And that's not the kind of world I think any of us want to live in. So Rose and I tried to set out a bit of an agenda for how we could recover in a smarter way. And this means that energy has to be at the heart of an inclusive global recovery. Energy just touches everything that we care about agriculture, job creation, women's empowerment, manufacturing, the digital economy. And it can't, again, just can't just be light bulbs for Africans. It has to be energy systems that can deliver productivity and and employment. And, you know, really fortunately, technology can help us build much, much smarter energy systems than we've had in the past. And that opportunity is what we need to take advantage of as we try to rebuild and recover. This is just, you know, a general point, but I've been using COVID as a lens to think about where we are underinvested, right? Because I think, as you said, Todd, when it was with respect to the power sector, uh, but you could talk about urbanization, you could talk about a number of things that COVID really shows where the inequities are, the disparities and where we really need to focus on when we when we work shift towards building back better. But Kit, I'd love to hear how Nithio's focus on off-grid energy matches or doesn't match with what Todd and Rose are saying. Yeah, it absolutely matches. I think Nithio is very ready to help the zombies come back to life or to, to help the zombies die and something better to be reborn in its place. So at Nithio, we use data analytics to better understand consumer credit risk, to understand household credit risk. And the goal of that is to unlock investment in off-grid energy. But the tools that we use really have application for better understanding any household and, and their energy demands and their ability to pay for energy. So it's really applicable to to grid customers as well. And, and I really do agree with much of what's in the, the article from Todd and Rose. I think the, the three points that really resonated the most for me were the need for systemic planning, the division and how grid and off-grid work together and, and in parallel, and the need for international involvement. And just to echo, I mean, energy is essential to everything else. No one needs energy simply to have energy. They need it for what it does. And so it's needed to pump or sanitize water, it's needed to cook food, it's needed to provide light and heat to keep vaccines cold, keep cell phones charged. And as Todd points out, it's needed to run Netflix and your laptop so you can work from home. It's really essential and it's been become more essential in the COVID era. And so I, I think this is where the systemic planning is, is really important. Most electrification planning is done from the top down. It's all about how power is supplied to customers. And Nithio's focus is really on the household and what solutions fit them best. So starting from that level, what do they need the energy for? What's there going to be their demand for energy and what's their ability to pay? And I think that's a really essential point to thinking about what's the overall system needed and, and how does energy factor into that? So definitely second the, the comment that that needs to be brought into any sort of recovery planning. And then the division between grid and off-grid, I, I think Todd and I might finally be on the same page if he's saying there is a role for off-grid energy. And I do Absolutely, think Kate. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So it's a, but it's a very, and I, I'm 100% in agreement. It's a very separate role that the energy that's needed for, uh, for economic growth is very different than energy that's needed for first access. And so, uh, the central grids now more than ever really do need to focus on their commercial industrial customers and households that are close to the existing infrastructure. Make sure that house is in order and make sure that that's a sustainable business 
before you try and connect every last mile household, every household that's out in remote areas. An off-grid solution really is best fit for a lot of the, the 600 million people who are not connected to the grid currently. And so that's really where Nithio is trying to help scale those off-grid solutions, not as necessarily the, the absolute last energy source they'll ever have, but as something that's really able to provide first access now. And finally, I fully agree on the need for additional international involvement, but really goes without saying that those funds have to be spent wisely. And so Nithio is now is trying to take this data-driven approach to make sure that financing is deployed in an efficient manner, that when you're using public resources or using donor funds, they're really used to support those households that need it most and get electricity out to the people that can't afford it. If I if I can connect, you know, Kate's point with Rose's point around zombie utilities, it's that, you know, for the, for the utilities to come back, they have to stop the losses. And that means they have to narrow their focus. And that is going to mean in a lot of countries concentrating principally on cities and industrial customers and probably seeding large parts of the market, including rural electrification, to you know private off-grid players like Kate's partners. So I, it actually makes a lot of sense. And you know, I know it's always more fun for a podcast if we would argue with each other and debate. But look, I think I always think of an analogy between energy and transportation. And, you know, my bicycle is cheap and clean and fun and the best way to get around my neighborhood. But, you know, it's terrible at long haul cargo uh, trucking. But it would be ridiculous for us to have a debate whether my bicycle or an 18 wheeler truck is better for transportation. They do totally different things. And that's the same for off-grid power systems versus large scale power plants. We need both because they prefer. They provide different services to an economy. And so, you know, that's where, that's where I see Kate's business model and vision matching very well with what Rose and I have been proposing. No, I can't tell you how happy I am that you're agreeing because I always feel like I'm going to get crosswise with one of you, uh, depending on where I land on the grid versus off grid. Yeah. And, and Judd, I'll just say that, you know, there's a part of off-grid that, you know, at some point there's going to be an intersection between the two. It's just, you know, when we say off-grid in African context, we need we mean like micro, like super, super small. Obviously, in mature economies, we have off-grid to mean much larger systems, distributed renewable energy um, resources spread around that are, you know, and there's a whole conversation about how to integrate those effectively with the grid and, and blah, 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 which is also connected to this death spiral conversation in the U.S. context. But I mean, the idea is that we don't want, Todd and I are not foreclosing on a, a different, you know, conceptualization of what the grid will look like in the future. We're not saying that, you know, the only way for Africa is like massive grids and that's it, the old school style. It's just that, you know, when we say utilities, it's almost, we mean the actual power utilities, but it's also a placeholder term that means the infrastructure, the institutions, all of the, that are configured in different ways in different markets that can deliver abundant, affordable, reliable energy to power economic centers. And, you know, the, the basic structure of that system is pretty much recognizable to what it has been in the past, but there's obviously a lot of innovation and evolution. And and at some point, as African power sectors um, evolve and the off-grid sector matures, you know, there's, there's going to be a, an intersection point. I think this is a really great point. And I think too often it's about the, the doom and gloom of so many people without electricity. But when you try to reform the U.S. power system, it's this behemoth aircraft carrier that's really hard to change direction. And I think in Africa, there's a huge opportunity in the fact that there's not a lot of incumbent infrastructure already there. And 
you know, every time this point comes up and we talk about innovation, everyone jumps to the, well, it's like cell phones. You can have this very distributed system and everyone's going to have their own you know, off-grid solution. And, and I think that is the wrong analogy. I um, got way too much agreement with Todd today, but uh, I do agree on the transportation analogy because I, I think where you're seeing innovation in you know, shared resources with cars or shared resources with scooters and whatever it is on top of the existing infrastructure with public infrastructure with buses and trains and all of that. I think that's a better analogy that there's going to be a lot of different ways for people to meet their needs. Some of them will be large public systems, some of them will be private solutions, but all of them will kind of fit together. And I think we're already seeing some of that with what's happening in the small scale distributed generation, what we're seeing in microgrids, what we're seeing in captive power for commercial industrial systems. Well, let's see if we can find some disagreement. I guess the question is, who gets it, right? Like, the this article came out in July. I'd love to hear, like, a status report on, is development finance getting this? Are African governments getting this? It sounds like, Kate, you're suggesting that some of the private sector gets this. You know, where are we? I mean, the message is out. You guys are in violent agreement, maybe for the first time. Uh, but what about the folks who are, you know, control the money and make the policy? I'm not sure anyone's thought about anything other than COVID in the past couple of months. Todd, Rose? I agree. When it comes to power and energy sector discourse in Africa, it's it's just all that. It's just all talk. And so a lot of people are saying, you know, that if you just do a Google search, there's, you know, a ton of pieces about how energy is important for recovery and we need more energy. And, uh, you know, the World Bank and the IEA and all of these energy people who, you know, this is, you know, they're responsible for this space and the African Development Bank, they're all saying the same thing, but we're not really seeing action in the direction of the agenda that Todd and I spell out like actual concrete action. So right now, I think the focus with COVID has been, COVID response has been on a number of short-term responses. So, you know, fast-tracking electrification or rural health centers, that's a big discussion point. I don't know what exactly is happening on the ground, but people sure are talking about it. We are seeing interventions that are really targeted at relief for consumers. So waiving electricity bills, some countries are doing some VAT relief interventions on energy purchases and that kind of thing. There is, I think, quite a lot more activity in terms of supporting off-grid solar companies, but there's no cohesive or long-term energy agenda. You know, governments are just focused on fighting the spread of the virus, keeping economies afloat, and providing some social protections. And and so this kind of broad-based agenda for energy in terms of the broader recovery, I'm, I'm finding is still missing. I'm not really seeing anything in the stimulus packages in, in terms of interventions. I'm not seeing anything that, that gets at this. Todd, your chance to play good cop? No, I think I'm more comfortable being bad cop. So I, I think we can probably blame the UN for a little bit of this confusion. So we have SDG number seven, which is a wonderful goal to provide modern, reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy for every person on the planet by 2030. But we are measuring it by just the household electrification rate. So you'll often hear there are 600 million Africans without household electricity, and we need to close that gap, and that will solve energy poverty. That is one important slice of the problem that we absolutely need to solve, and we need to use the least cost options to get basic electricity to every person on the planet. But that's a different problem than trying to solve the power to run a modern economy. So while even as countries like Ghana are approaching 100% household electrification, they're still dealing with terrible issues of high cost of power and especially reliable power. You know, we're seeing terrible rolling brownouts and blackouts, even in South Africa, 
And there is not an economy on the continent that does not have a reliability problem. And that is a different problem than the last mile household connection problem that we're also trying to solve. So we need different tools to solve these these different problems. Kate, if you were in your old job at Power Africa, what are the kinds of changes that you would recommend now, you know, thinking about COVID and post-COVID challenges? Yeah, I think the the priorities for electrification are actually really similar to pre-COVID. I think just the the need is that much stronger. And I think as as Todd and Rose noted that the need has been exposed a little bit more and, and understanding that that gap and the unconscionability of, of continuing to have that gap. And so I think there's absolutely a need to get economies back on track. That means ensuring that power is reliable, cost effective for, for commercial industrial users. And you provide support to utilities, to investors in new power generation transmission. You provide support to, to regulators. All of these are things that Power Africa has been doing this entire time and I think has been doing it really, really well. I think the support needs to increase, though. And I think that's the challenging part is that, as I noted earlier, the the majority of the world has been so hard hit by COVID. Finding those additional resources, both in in dollars and personnel, is going to be that much more challenging. There's going to be there's so many crises. There's so many domestic crises for who would be the typical donors, including the U.S. And so I think that's it's going to be a tougher fight to make sure that those dollars are allocated to to energy. And I think it's absolutely essential. It is going to energy because that is what drives health outcomes. That can be what drives education outcomes. But I think that fight for resources is going to be that much more difficult. Same on the off-grid side. I think the Beyond the Grid program at Power Africa can continue to help enable companies to scale, ensure the sector is moving forwards, ensure that they're prioritizing larger and larger systems that support productive use and income generation. So you have continue to have not only the, the quality of life improvements, but also economic improvement in rural areas. So I, th- I think the bigger challenge, you know, figuring out the technical side of it is always the easy part. I think that's relatively easy. I think the arguing for resources internally within the government is the part that's about to get really, really tough and it probably already has gotten really, really tough. Yeah, I think that's fair. But as we talked about in the earlier segment, you know, the job of us, those of us at think tanks is to help people think beyond the horizon and beyond the immediate crisis. So you know, hopefully this conversation, in addition to all the work that you're doing, will elevate that. I want to end with a plug section. So, Todd, uh, since everyone on this call, except for me, is related in some way or another to the Energy Growth Hub, can you tell us a little bit about what's coming down the pipe? Yeah. So, look, our vision of the hub is that no one's job is lost because they live in a place where the power is lousy. And so we try to use data and evidence to deliver a high energy future for everyone. So we get a little nerdy on this. So some things that are coming down the pipeline, I know we're recording it today. I think by the time this podcast posts, this will be up, is a new database that we've created for a new metric called the Reliability Adjusted Cost of Electricity, or RACE, which is the true cost of power for firms in Africa. So RACE takes the industrial tariff and then it adds in the extra cost that companies have to pay for backup generation when the grid is out. And so in, in Nigeria, for example, the, the tariff is around 12 cents. But once you count the cost of backup, it's really closer to 20 cents a kilowatt hour. And race is this new way to make comparisons and countries and companies can set targets. And this data race database will be released on our website in coming days. We've also got a really exciting global map for advanced nuclear technology. I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to talk about advanced nuclear today. 
but we're working with the think tank Third Way to project the readiness of every country on the planet for these new, smaller, more flexible nuclear power models that will be coming to market in coming years. And in sub-Saharan Africa today, only South Africa has nuclear power, but we project that Ghana, Kenya, and maybe even Nigeria could be ready for these new models by 2030, and that another 17 African countries could be ready if they take certain steps for this technology by 2050. So that that's an exciting um, thing, this global map. And then to follow on Kate's point about the future of Power Africa, we're really lucky that Katie Auth, the other Power Africa Katie, has joined us at the Hub as our new policy director. And she'll be developing a set of recommendations for the next U.S. administration, regardless of who wins the election, how they can take this terrific program that's made a big difference in generating power and investment in the power sector in Africa. How could we make it even better? And then one last point, I just I can't end without mentioning that on October 10th, Rose Matiso's latest TED Talk will go live and she will be tackling the very complicated issue of climate justice and energy in Africa. And I really couldn't be more proud or more excited to see that TED Talk. Todd, brag a little bit about Rose's last TED Talk. Well, she's up to uh, nearly 2 million views, which is hundreds of multiples more than Judd and I and Kate will ever uh, accumulate in terms of eyeballs yes, um, on totally. some of our videos. She's a, a physicist with a background in material science, but is also a passionate energy policy nerd, is the perfect combination for somebody to really take the messages about the importance of energy and energy poverty in Africa to the rest of the world. Oh, thanks, Dodd. Too kind. You know, I think when this first came out, I was just like, I think the first like 10,000 or so, I was like, oh, I, views, I, I could hardly believe it. And then I got greedy. So now I'm like, can we get to 3 million? <laughs> so tell all your friends. <laughs> well, I guess we'll do a, we'll also put a link to that and add maybe a couple more to your TED Talk. And of course, any of the things that Todd just mentioned, we'll also have links to. I want to thank the three of you for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to the next episode in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. <laughs>